Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we cover episodes 9 and 10 of Neon Genesis Evangelion, as well as the show's iconic musical score. Finally, at last. We won't be spoiling anything from the upcoming episodes, but we will point out foreshadowing when it's relevant. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 5, launch! Episode 9, Mind Matching Moment. This episode begins much the way the last one ended, with the boys at school creeping on Asuka, who has quickly become hyper-popular at their as-yet-unnamed high school. Toji notices that though Asuka is very photogenic, she keeps her personality concealed from everyone around her. Asuka is pretty much affectionate towards Shinji, but also confrontational with him. She says that he's still just a kid. Like Shinji, however, she's struggling to make any kind of emotional connection with Rei, who's also her classmate. Meanwhile, back at Nerve, Kaji hits on Ritsuko, much to Misato's chagrin. The three of them obviously share some sort of past, and Kaji admits that he's been reassigned to Nerve for the foreseeable future. Just then, the sixth angel, Isafrel, appears. Masato sends Asuka and Shinji to attack together before the angel makes landfall. Asuka wants to fight alone and warns Shinji to keep out of her way. This proves unwise when she attempts to cut Isafrel in half, only to find out that it can split into identical copies of itself. Uh, Isfarel splits in two, easily whoops Asuka and Shinji's ass, which is then recapped in a humorous slideshow. Asuka and Shinji quickly find that they have opposing views on how to proceed. They both blame each other for getting in each other's way. Uh, Isfarel is blasted by an N2 mine, and the episode becomes another race against the clock. Futsuke remarks that their goal is not to pilot Ava's, but to defeat angels, so they must work together. Masato is mired in paperwork from the ensuing damage, and Ritsuko comments that if she fails again, she will definitely be demoted, but does offer Masato a possible plan to beat Isfarel, which, as it turns out, comes from Kaji. Back at Masato's apartment, Shinji finds, much to his surprise, that Asuka has moved in, into his room, in fact, with too many boxes to fit in their small, typically Japanese apartment. Misato reveals that the plan, Kaji's plan, is to train Shinji and Asuka to perform a synchronized attack set to music. That's right, it's a dance fight plan. Asuka and Shinji fucking hate it. The boys in the class rep stop in to visit Misato and Shinji and then find uh, Asuka and Shinji both dressed in women's leotards speaking in unison. It's funnier than it sounds. Asuka complains, but Misato shows her that Rei is already capable of syncing with Shinji and performing uh, the dance routine, albeit at a slower pace. Misato says that she might sub Rei in for Asuka, at which point Asuka runs off. The class rep, who again with the boys has been witnessing this whole thing, tells Shinji that she needs to go after Asuka and make peace with her since he, quote, made her cry, unquote. Uh, Shinji finds Asuka alone and dejected. She says something along the lines of that she has nothing left in life besides being an Ava pilot. With their bond reaffirmed, she 
rededicates herself to sinking with Shinji in a humorous training montage. Masato leaves the two of them in the apartment by themselves. Asuka chooses to move out of Shinji's room, given the opportunity. Even so, that night, she sleepwalks back into Shinji's room and falls asleep next to him. Shinji briefly considers kissing her, but stops when he sees that she's crying slightly and hears her say the word mommy in her sleep. He decides to move out of the bed and comments that she is just a kid too. Hard cut to an elevator where Kaji and Masato are hardcore making out, really going at it. Going at it! Though Masato rushes out of the elevator when it opens, remarking that she's no longer dating Kaji. She says that part of her life is over. Uh, He says her mouth says one thing and her body says another, and we really need to get an HR department in nerve. Jesus Christ. Masato uh, meets Ritsuko for a drink afterwards where she remarks that she will never go back to being with Kaji. But Ritsuko thinks that they should see if the chemistry is still there and says Masato is still a kid. The next day, Asuka and Shinji execute the coordinated attack in a beautiful one-minute sequence timed to classical music. One of the best sequences in the show. Total triumph. They do, however, botch the landing, falling on top of each other in a heap after the angel is defeated. Outside their entry plugs, the two fall back into childish quarreling. And if you liked Asuka and Shinji quarreling in the last episode, you're going to love episode 9, The Magma Diver. When the episode opens, Asuka is going shopping with Kaji for swimsuits. When she shows Kaji a swimsuit she wants to buy, he says that she might be a little too young for a swimsuit that revealing, but she says he's just behind the times. When he asks why she's buying a swimsuit, she says that she's excited for her upcoming class trip to the hot springs in Okinawa. Kaji then remarks, he didn't have a school trip because of the second impact. After the title bump, Misato says that she's not going to allow Asuka or Shinji to go to Okinawa on the class trip because they're essentially perpetually on call. Asuka wants Shinji to back her up, but Shinji refuses. After that, Asuka remarks quite uh, perceptively that Nerve is always on the defensive and they ought to be more preemptive with the angels. But Misato remarks that they don't know where the angels come from and also that Asuka's grades are slipping. Meanwhile, it's a calm day at Nerve HQ. Uh, Shinji is studying while Ray swims. Asuka comes up and distracts him with her new swimsuit and then corrects his schoolwork for him. We find out that Asuka is actually a genius uh, level student for a 14-year-old and graduated college already, but can't speak Japanese, which is why she's failing in Japanese high school. Elsewhere, Futsuke and the deck crew look at photos of an active volcano and think they may have found a still-dormant angel inside. But, as they confirm it, the pressure breaks their probe. Masato locks down the geothermal research outpost near the volcano and attempts to stage an offensive maneuver. Gendo pitches the idea to Zele, who reject it. They don't want a repeat of 15 years ago, on, uh, to use their phrase, but Gendo insists. With the plan a go, Asuka volunteers to perform the maneuver, mostly out of boredom, which is approved. However, she doesn't like the heat and pressure-resistant plug suit that she's going to have to wear. It blows up like Violet from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, if you've ever seen that. She especially doesn't want Kaji to see her in the blown-up suit. At which point, Ray volunteers to pilot Unit 2 instead, but Asuka also rejects that idea, says that she will wear the suit, and off we go. At the volcano, Misato tells Asuka that Kaji will not actually be attending the mission and so will not witness her in the funny, embarrassing plug suit. But Kaji is there. 
he's meeting in secret on uh, what looks like a ski trolley, uh, revealing that he's a double agent working both for and against Nerve. But it's not entirely clear what sort of intel he's talking about. At the volcano inside Unit 1, Shinji notices that there's UN aircraft overhead. Ritsuko tells him that in case the mission fails, the UN will drop an N2 mine on the volcano, incinerating the Angel and the Avas as well, on his father's orders. Asuka drops into the magma in Unit 2. Her visibility is low, so they continue to drop her into the lava past the recommended depth of her gear. Her progressive knife breaks off, but Asuka insists that she is fine. She does capture the incubating angel, Sandalfon, in a force field, but predictably, Sandalfon instantly metamorphosizes into its mature form and attacks. We get more or less a repeat of the uh, Gagiel fight, but with darker and more indistinct animation. Not the show's finest moment for the fight scene, but we respect the creativity. Shinji tosses his progressive knife down to Asuka, but Sandalfon's armor is impervious to it due to the high heat that it's adapted to inside the volcano. So Asuka severs one of her coolant tubes and shoves it into Sandalfon, using thermal expansion, or contraction, to kill it. Sandalfon dies, but breaks the cable suspending Asuka. She briefly resigns herself to death, but is rescued by Shinji in an unarmored Unit 1. Happily ever after... The Nerve team takes a break at the nearby hot springs, uh, mostly to satiate Asuka's desire for her class trip. Kaji even helps. He ships Pen Pen to them to join in the hot spring festivities since, you know, Pen Pen's a hot spring penguin. Shinji and Pen Pen are in one hot spring, separated by a wooden wall from the hot spring that the girls are in, and finds himself aroused at the sound of them horsing around and feels embarrassed with Pen Pen being the only witness to his pubescent erection. Meanwhile, in the spring next door, Asuka notices a very noticeable scar on Misato's sternum. When she asks about it, Misato says that it's an injury she sustained during the second impact. Asuka then cryptically remarks that Misato must know about her troubled past. Misato says she does know about Asuka's past. That's her job. But insists that it's time for both of them to leave the past in the past. And that's it. What I love about these episodes, and I was surprised by how much I loved them, is really encapsulated in that last sequence at the end of episode 10, is that these two episodes almost, they, they hint at like what Ava could be if it was a more conventional show, where it's this sort of like high school drama, you get a balance of you know, balances all these sort of like prepescent emotions against like the high paced action of fighting the angels. But what keeps sneaking in, even during the sort of moments of levity and like sexual hijinks, is this like really, really melancholy undertone about past trauma. And that keeps coming up, especially in Magma Diver. I, I was really taken by how well they incorporate that in. I'm I'm, I know I'm jumping like right into it, but my first impression from these two episodes upon rewatching it is like surprisingly high quality television. I think that these are like secretly some of the best episodes in the show. And I'd love to hear if you uh, if you feel the same way. I am maybe less positive toward them than you are, but still in general. I mean, I love the TV show, right? I love all of it. We're past mm-hmm. the only episode I, I don't like. So I, I do like them. 
and you're and you're right. These episodes are sort of like a soft reset for the show. Now that Oscar's in the show, the drama sort of reformulates around her and Shinji's relationship as co-workers and rivals and potential like romantic interests, which is like conventional, but in my opinion, pretty well executed as far as it as far as these things could be done. It's interesting, you know, Yoshiki Satomoto, as I said in the last episode, serialized Evangelion as a comic that he drew while the show was airing and then afterward because it took too long. Almost all of the next part of the show, the monster of the week part, but better because Asuka's in it, he excises. Magma Diver isn't in it. Issa Frel isn't isn't in it, to my recollection. I, I may be wrong about Issa Frel, but I think I'm right. Which makes sense because I think these episodes are more well suited to animation than comics. Like I, I think they're they're more well suited to television as a medium. But you're right. It, like it, the addition of Asuka makes the more mundane parts of this series better. I think I agree wholeheartedly. We mentioned in the last episode that Asuka has just a totally different energy than the rest of the characters on the show. She's much more assertive and much like is willing to go out of her way to like put herself in situations that Shinji would shy from or Ray would just sort of be mute and implacable about, you know, Ray Ray is not an active character. She responds to orders. Shinji is constantly questioning his own agency and as we've talked about is often being manipulated by forces out of his control Asuka on the other hand really really drives her own action in these episodes is constantly asserting herself and that just makes the the more mundane sequences much more interesting because it actually has someone who is like outside of their shell and you know provoking reactions from the other characters Totally. I, I think it also it's also interesting that I also wonder if the show here makes a conscious point to begin pivoting away from the giant robot action as a centerpiece. The, the Isafrel fight is brilliant, but Isafrel's kind of a is is an interesting but kind of a boring monster. It's more or less a, a repeat of Satchiel from the first two episodes. More or less a redesign with one new ability. Likewise, Sandalfon is more or less the same thing as Gagiel, but designed somewhat differently. And those fight scenes sort of go in in like a similar fashion. That said, I think the show never makes the angel sequences boring. There's there's stuff in both of these episodes involving the angels that that has burned itself into my memory. And I'm I'm thinking a lot about the body horror stuff. I'm thinking a lot about the the animated sequence where Isafrel splits into its two its its two bodies. I think about that sequence all the time. I also think Sandalfon's metamorphosis from what looks like a giant human embryo into this precambrian sea organism is astounding. Full disclosure, since we've been rewatching Evangelion, I've been having Evangelion dreams. <laughs> um, and those haven't hit me quite yet, but I'm sure that they will. I'm, I'm having Evangelion dreams and the stuff that's that's in them is like the, the metamorphosing angel stuff. I think the creative direction on this show 
is so smart to make the angels nightmarish and not you can't like pin them to any kind of other type of monster that you've seen before like you know sure they'll resemble a shark or they'll be slightly humanoid but they'll still have there's just something always subtly off about them like that sort of fleshy regrowth that you're talking about when Isfarel is split in two or just like the way it sort of looms it's they they have this like weird toy-like quality or like strangely I don't know they're just they feel unsolved quote-unquote like there's something that is just sort of slightly surreal or slightly not what you'd think they would look like that keeps them from being boring yeah and they they stick in your memory because of it it's like unique design but even beyond that i think what makes the show so good is all of the action sequences are different it's been a while since we've just straight up had like a fist fight the way that it was in the very first angel fight like every single one it has like some slight twist on the the battle to make it unique like okay now it's two avas now they have to fight two angels at once or a new setting of them being like inside lava, even though I agree that like that the, the lava fight is not visually interesting, really, you know, Oscar isn't able to move. She doesn't really have a lot to actually do to defeat the angel. She just kind of has to like wait for this one clever solution, but that just makes it different. It's, it, it allows them to not repeat themselves, which I think helps the show stay fresh as it goes on. It's also, Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing alert. Uh, it's also interesting and, and smart in the writing that the way that the angels are presented is meant to be sort of like a visual or physical manifestation of the internal character problem that the characters are having, right? Like, yes. Yeah. It, the dance fight is all about Shinji and Asuka can't sync the way that they can sync with their Avas. So here's an angel that requires them to have pitch perfect coordination to defeat it. The Magma Diver episode is about Asuka and about Asuka's body issues. Like it's a body issue fucking episode and it opens with her wanting to do have this very revealing swimsuit that like sort of barely it's sort of sort of funny because actually now nowadays I think that swimsuits that teenagers wear are actually much 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 more risque than this, but for 1995's Japanese standards, a pretty revealing swimsuit for a young woman, and then it's like okay, the fight is all going to be about you being covered in armor and having your movement restricted, and the challenge is that your mo- your motion is slow and you don't want to be looked at. She doesn't want to be looked at in the plug suit and then the the biggest issue she has fighting the angel is she can't see it Mm, yeah that's a very good point i think this magma diver episode is really clever in the way that it sort of repeats the beats of shinji's early fights against the angels but with asuka's anxieties being at the forefront Mm -hmm. in the same way that we talked about having a lot of like phallic imagery in the initial angels that shinji fights this magma diver episode is really really heavy-handed when it comes to like motherhood anxiety as well the entire episode Asuka is attempting to assert herself as being like uh you know like a sexual and like in control of her body and you know wants Shinji's attention but when it comes time for her to actually fight the angel she has to blow up as if she's pregnant and go inside of a giant cavity to retrieve a fetus 
and bring it out into the surface. It's, it's an entirely about giving birth. And in the same way that the early episodes are about, you know, Gendo, the father figure forcing Shinji to, you know, go fight a bunch of giant dicks. In this episode, Gendo is absent. And so it's Masato and Ritsuko, two older women who are sending Asuka into this, like, initiation into motherhood ritual, basically. Do you think that's a reach or or did you were you picking up on that stuff too? No, I don't I don't think it's a reach. I think that's right. I mean, you know, Evangelion is like almost heavy-handedly Freudian. Like and and if you're the sort of person who thinks Freud isn't relevant anymore, maybe this stuff isn't going to connect with you. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I I can't like talk about how Freud does or doesn't factor into the way we understand the human psyche now. But if you think of his ideas as like cultural archetypes, as mythological archetypes, then the the show is leaning on them, is leveraging them. It's not leaning on them. They're not a crutch. They're they're its tool. It's the Freudian ideas are the leverage that the show uses to connect the viewer to the character and try to get inside your head. And it'll use the dialogue to do that. It'll use the animation to do that. It'll use the scenario to do that. Whether or not Freud is relevant to modern psychology, he's absolutely relevant to this show. And it it lends a certain level of import and coherent visual language to the show that helps it function and makes it easily readable. I I, want to talk more about the pool scene. Uh, we, we sort of, we should, I've, I've got, I've got so many feelings about like the pool scene and like Oscar in general in this episode, you go first. Yeah. I think it is secretly one of the saddest episode of uh, one of the saddest scenes in the whole show. Cause it's about these two teenagers who are both so clearly like going through a lot of complicated emotions about their desires And they keep missing each other. They keep being unable to speak a common language, even though it's clear that they're both to some degree kind of into each other, but they don't know how to express it to each other. And they just keep butting up against each other. So to recap that scene, you know, Shinji's working on his laptop. Asuka shows up in her revealing bathing suit and is like, you know, leaning right over Shinji is making it very clear that she wants to be like in Shinji's space. And Shinji doesn't know how to deal with this and, you know, is flustered and kind of pulls back, recedes. And there's this, like, opportunity because Asuka doesn't know how to read Japanese. Shinji does. Shinji could just say, hey, I could tutor you. I could teach you. He could do something to, like, forge a connection, but he doesn't. And, you know, then there's this, you know, awkward joke that Asuka tries to make about, like, when they're talking about thermal expansion. And she's like, oh, like, maybe if I... Like, would heat make my boobs bigger? And Shinji just, you know, steam pouring out of his ears has no idea how to deal with being, like, asked a question like that. And when he expresses, like, dis- like kind of disgust at it, Asuka's, like, heartbroken. She's like, oh, you're so boring. And it's this just, like, missed opportunity for them. Like, she doesn't know how to get Shinji out of his shell and doesn't know how to, like, Ah, it's just, it's so sad. I, it, it's like watching like a, a date go badly or something, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it is an awkward Tinder date. Yeah. With, with Ray witnessing it, which sort of makes it worse. Right. Cause yeah. Shinji like shoots that look over to Ray as she's leaving, which then 
inspires even more like anxiety and prickliness from Oscar. Like that's another thing we should talk about is the Oscar Ray relationship. But I, I want to hear your take on the pool scene first. It, I think the pool scene ties into Oscar's inappropriate relationship with Kaji. And I, I'm going to take this to a dark place. I hope you don't mind. Do I have your permission to take this to a dark place? We're doing an Evangelion podcast. The whole point of this is taking it to a dark place. So like, whether we like it or not, some dark shit is going to come up in later episodes. So bring it on. Let's go. Sure. Okay. So con- confession, and I hope the leader, the listeners don't mind. Um, I'm a sexual assault survivor. Uh, I've, I've been to therapy. I'm good. No one worry about me. Um, I'm happy. I'm, I'm cool. Uh, but, you know, when I was like coping with that, I naturally did a lot of reading a lot of research to try and sort of like understand my scenario and understand what happens to other people who go through this scenario. And there, there is, I I don't know if this is still like en vogue or not, but there is, or at least was for a long time, a school of thought that, that thought that people who are, who are uh, compromised sexually as children may express hypersexuality inappropriately young. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I think maybe the the show like obliquely hints at that with Asuka, not literally, but in in as much as her her it acknowledges that like her sexual uh, like advances toward Kaji or intimations are not appropriate, and even like super horn dog Tinder King Kaji knows they're inappropriate and 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 acts that way, right? Her like breast comments towards Shinji are inappropriate, and even he as an emotionally stunted teenager can tell like this is too forward this is not right i'm not prepared for you to talk to me about your breasts in a public place but all of that's sort of lost on oscar right yeah and so so i think this is a, a way of this show showing us this is how she's trying to deal with her trauma right the show hasn't told us what that trauma is but Magma Diver is littered with references in from multiple characters about have all of them have been through something awful. It's the first time we really get the sense of what second impact means to the sort of millennial generation, right? You know, Kaji, Ritsuko, and Masato. Mm-hmm. And the way that it's the the opening scene where, you know, Kaji says, We didn't get to go on a school trip because there was second impact. It's crucial that like the show is taking place for the main characters, for the kids, while they're in middle school. And there's another generation of characters, another trio of characters who had a similarly traumatic middle middle school experience. So the show is laying on this kind of idea. You can see where this is going. It's all about puberty and puberty reflected in these sort of horrific space operatic generational traumas. There's this really, really terrific scene, you know, when when Masato is telling Asuka and Shinji that they can't go on the trip, the way that Asuka is just sort of it's the same thing of her sort of being too forward, saying, well, we we should just attack the angels. We should just go to where they are and and kill them. And Masato's just like you can tell that it's not just that, oh, we don't know where they are, but the way that they talk about, oh, attacking the angel could spark second impact again. So there's this sense that the pain that the millennial generation went through is why they're wary. It, you, they 
it's contrasted against the, the naivety and forwardness of youth versus the sort of like wariness of being victims of trauma that comes in with the, the millennial characters. I, I think it's a really, really subtle mirror image that moves along for that entire episode that I, I, I love. And I think it's a brilliant way of setting up the much darker themes of the rest of the show. Totally. It's interesting that, that, that like this is sort of happening now because I mean, it's not a one to one, but it's, it's, it's an easy way to read the show that like the survivors of the second impact are like the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm, yeah. Right? It's, it's an easy read to think of maybe Masato and, and Kaji and Ritsuko as stand-ins or ciphers for people that maybe Anno and his team knew that were not soldiers in world war two, but nonetheless had to deal with the, the trauma of like, Oh, we got nuked people used a sci-fi weapon on us and mm-hmm. and what does that do to you and i think maybe ano relates to the main characters in such a way because he he wasn't born during world war 2 so he's he's part of this generation of artists from japan who've like grown up in prosperity in the shadow of a of an atomic war as an American, I think, you know, maybe the, the closest If you want thing- me to go there, I can go there. I can have my, my like, going dark moment. Is the way that Masato and Kaji talk about second impact as this, like, looming thing uh, does remind me a lot about the way that I and other New Yorkers around my age talk about 9-11. You took you the know? words right out of my mouth. When I, I was, like, around Shinji's age when, and living in New York when 9-11 happened, you know? Like... It's it's a similar kind kind of uh, it, it it maps very, like I could see if I if I'm like Masato's age, which I I am, if I was talking to like uh, someone in Gen Z about global politics or you know anything like that's gonna be hovering over the way that we talk about the conversation that disparity of experiences in the same way that Masato and Asuka's conversation is colored by second impact so it's it rings really really true to me i think it's it's a very like true part of the show it rings true to me differently because i've had to in the course of like my my work like i've now like in in offices had to work with the first round of like sort of gen z college graduates Mm -hmm. who were in high school during the great recession yeah and 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 like have difficulty understanding when I tell them like, listen, when I graduated from college, there was no work. There was nothing to do. No one was hiring. Like no one did anything for two years after I graduated college in the Midwest. There was, there was nothing. There was just uh, like people my age and our pain. Yeah. I mean, that's why we all got into blogging and why we're now doing a podcast about anime. Cause that's the skills that we developed because we, you know, exited school into this fucking barren wasteland. Too true. Too true. (laughs) Too real, man. Shit. It's so funny. Like you can already see the show is like getting under our skin. (laughs) I, I didn't think we'd get too real on the hot spring and music episodes. Well, okay. So the, the amazing thing is that like, so this is ostensibly like another anime classic. It's like their version of the beach episode or like the hot springs episode, which is usually just like an excuse for like, I, I've been making the joke every episode, but it's an excuse for fan service, you know? And 
you get the like the obligatory shot of you know Misato and Asuka in the nude in the hot spring, but tastefully concealed, tastefully concealed by steam, of course. Right. But the conversation that they're having is about a shared understanding of trauma. Like it doesn't let you have the like anime cheesecake shit without being like, Oh no, 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 no. They're people like they've been through things. You can't just ogle at them. It's incredible. I, I, it, you, it's really starting to fuck up the conventions of anime in a really, really cool way in these episodes. It, it's here's your chance to finally finally ogle at Misato after she's been teasing at it for 10 episodes. And it's like, oh, by the way, the, the one piece of her body that she always keeps covered up has a big fucking scar where presumably some sort of like shrapnel like went right through her. And it's like right above her heart, basically. It's you know? right above. It's right above her heart. It's it's. And the funny thing is, is like you'll blink and not see it if you're if you're looking at it in a pervy way, like it takes Asuka noticing like what happened there. Mm-hmm. And Miss Hada's like second impact, baby, all of us. The the good thing about these episodes, like there is still light, lighter stuff to talk about, but it, this, these episodes, the show in general, I keep saying like, Oh, these episodes feel like a turning point. And the thing that makes Evangelion so good is it's all a turning point. It's all, twisting towards something even though you don't know what that thing is yet these episodes even though i i opened by saying like oh this is what the show could have been if it didn't go to where it is truly going if it was like a less ambitious show even in that even under the the pretense of normalcy and like lower stakes conflict because that's another thing about these two angel fights is now that there are multi like there are three avas the angels just kind of aren't as scary anymore you know, Isfarel whooping Asuka and Shinji's ass is played for a joke. Like real funny too. Like, here's, the, here's the leg sticking up out of the. <laughs> I forgot how like I forgot that that gag lands, and then they're like four seconds later, hard cut. There's the other Ava in the exact same position. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it's good. It's a good gag. It's really funny, and it's amazing that it's able to pull that off. When you think of what losing to an angel looked like at the beginning of the show, it looked like. Shinji getting his arm ripped in half. It looked like laser beams being shot through chests. And like the fact that this sh- like the show's tone has significantly changed. Like the angels are just slightly less uh, intimidating. And I think that kind of matches the mood of these episodes. Like everyone's in a kind of a good place. Like it's there's all this other stuff for them to worry about. There's more mundane concerns. And so suddenly the like the existential horror of the angels kind of recedes a bit. They're just not as terrifying. And that just makes these episodes just feel like calmer in some way. But it, the show is absolutely going to ratchet it back up. It's a it's a really cool dip that in like dramatic tension that they still are able to use these episodes to say so much about the characters. I, I really totally I fucking love this show. It the, it also sort of makes sense from a plot sense in in that so much about the angels is mysterious. You, you you don't really they're not like the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, the remake version, of course, the real one. Let's be honest. They're not like that in, in that, you know, in that series, they're constantly promising, you know, like the Cylons have a plan. You don't get any promises from the angels, but there is this sort of looming sense that 
if the angels aren't cooperating together, then they're they're working toward a certain cause. They have some sort of goal. It's been hinted at what that goal is. We don't really get it. And and so here's your foreshadowing, folks. When conventional giant monster attacks stop working, then it's time to get unconventional giant monsters. And and that's sort of like the second half of the series is here's my Godzilla reference. The second half the second half of this series is is Evangelion saying, Oh, you thought big laser shooting dragon was bad. <laughs> I'll show you bad. Yes. Yes. Then one of the other nice parts about the sort of lowered stakes is we get to see a bit more of the world in in a nice way. Like yeah. we're starting to get a bit more of a sense of who the other cast and crew are like. The other officers at Nerve have like each get their own little shot of them doing their own thing while it's a slow work day. And mm-hmm. you you just get a sense of like more character from them. And it's it's really nice. It's it's the show knows in this moment, okay, we don't have to worry about like the big things. So we're gonna put our energy into making all the small stuff really nice in these episodes. Totally. I, I, I think you and I both picked on the same moment. My favorite little tiny shot in, in that episode is Shigeru, the long-haired bridge guy air guitaring. Yeah. He's, he's a metalhead, right? To- 100%. Be. And I, there, there will be more proof of that as the, the, the show goes on, I think. Like, his character profile strikes me as like, oh, yeah, this guy likes Maiden. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if we... I don't know if we said this to the readers, but a little bit of backstory. The way Ian and I met is that we're both metalheads. Like, Evangelion wasn't the first glue of our friendship. Uh, a big guitar sound was. And I think that's actually a very appropriate segue into the the next big topic, which is that, you know, we we used to be music journalists, and it's been a a, a travesty that we have not talked about the music of Neon Genesis Evangelion yet. And... Now that we finally have an episode devoted to dance. Devoted to music. Devoted to music. We have to talk about music now. So let's fucking do it. Okay. But I recall a tweet when they when they first announced that Netflix was going to put Evangelion out. And this tweet is the realest feel. The realest feel is someone said, the thought of someone being able to push skip intro on Cruel Angel's thesis is killing me. Awful. Every time Netflix suggests it, I, I just, part of my brain is like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> I want to throw my Alexa remote through the fucking window. If you skip Cruel Angel's thesis even once, you're a coward. It's, you're, you're just robbing yourself of joy. Why would you do that? Could be the greatest anime intro of all time. I would I would say like if you've got competitors bring them cuz I don't think any like run up and get done up. Cruel Angel's thesis is terrific. I've now been in multiple bands where someone will mention the Evangelion theme song and usually someone I don't know super well in the band will just start badly karaokeing it and they don't know the lyrics but they know the first few syllables in Japanese. Mm-hmm. It's it's an iconic piece of music. It be, has become a meme in its own right. Like you can go on YouTube and find like versions of the Ava intro for other TV shows, like cut and edited in the same way with Cruel Angel Thesis over it. And I I have like my, my theory of songs that become memes is that if something goes viral for some reason, that's because it works. 
on a musical level, it's catchy enough that people want to use it as a joke. Even something as like corny as like never going to give you up. The reason people found it like memeable is because on some level it's kind of catchy. Something about it kind of sticks with you. And Cruel Angel's thesis, I think, exemplifies all of the telltale signs of a just like perfectly written earworm. Uh, the melodies are all so good. It's this incredibly long, florid phrase. Uh, it's like an like a four measure verse melody that repeats, mm-hmm. and it's all really good cellular development. But it has this sense of like a conversation that like goes to a place and then comes back. The pre-chorus melody is great. It has that sort of insistent like da 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 rhythm to it that like heightens the tension, and then the fucking chorus, and it's just ecstasy. It's <laughs> the most like explosive arrangement. Like all of these like little horn stabs and backing vocals and like syncopations of like the the percussion underneath. It's fucking astounding. It's so well written. It's a, it's an incredible piece of music. To your to your point about things that going viral working, um, let's let's just point out that I believe at the time of this recording, uh, Old Town Road is the most successful number one song of all time. Now, yep. nineteen weeks in a row this summer. Nineteen weeks in a row. Uh, it's a meme, right? People liked it on TikTok, right? And and there's there's weirdly some kind of common ground between Cruel Angel's thesis and and old... I can't believe I'm saying this. There's a connecting thread between fucking Little Nas X and this song in that, like, they both just make you want to clench your fist and go, yes, like, right at the start. Yes, yeah. They have a, a, a similar, like, anthemic, defiant energy to them, you know? Cruel Angel's thesis is, like, kind of directed at Shinji, if you look at the lyrics, you know? It's about, like... Totally, not kind of, Like, totally, young boy... I think become a legend and it's it's boosting him up it's someone reaching out and saying like no you can do it it's like that classic like uh you know that video of like the the japanese fisherman you know saying like you want to quit mm-hmm. but don't do it like i i'm here every single day like in the cold water like you you can power through it it's like that's the vibe of cruel, cruel angel's thesis it's trying to coax shinji into a state of confidence and mm-hmm. it's about instilling you, the listener, with that same power. It kind of also reminds me of like the Rocky theme or like another meme, another like meme song, like the Giles theme goes goes with everything. Like all, right. All it's th- true. All three of those songs have a few different things in common, like a rising melodic and harmonic pattern that never feels entirely resolved. Like it never hits the tonic at, with like a big thud that says like, now the song is over. And they also are littered with syncopation like all of the the melody is like coming up all on the upbeats or is like and like doing these anticipated endings that sort of drive you forward and it's also why those pieces of music just go so well with visual editing like the the whole reason that guile's theme goes with everything is it doesn't matter how the images are edited because there's so many little rhythmic hits that could catch onto an edit and part of what makes the the Ava opening so great is the way that the images are cut with the music. Uh, and I feel I feel like everyone's got their own favorite little edit, but for me, it's the like the rising like keyboard line, the dun 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 dun, with like all of the flashes along with the characters' faces. Uh, it's the best part. Yeah, it's so good. And they they repeat that same trick in the uh, uh, Isfrel fight. Like they do. 
it, it's the Israel fight is is weirdly enough is like a, is like its own little greatest hits thing. Is it's like what if title sequence, but also first fight scene, same thing. Mm-hmm. It also like the the one difference is that the the music during the synchronized fight is a waltz, and it's this like grand like lilting. It feels comfortable, you know. You're you're getting ahead of me because we're gonna come back to waltzes. Okay. Yes. I, I just I just wanted to say one thing about the instrumentation of of Cruel Angels thesis. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, multiple bands I've been in, someone's brought the song up. Multiple I've only ever been in death metal bands. Um, multiple death metal bands. We've tried to think like, can we cover the Evangelion theme song and have no one like know what it is? And the problem always is, it is the busiest bass line I've ever heard. N- no American show has something so proggy, so funky. It's like roundabout cranked. Mm, yeah. I, what What is the bass even doing? And it's mixed super loud. It, like, I don't even know if there is a guitar in the song. It's there, horns, synths, and bass. There's a, There are some guitars, but they're mostly doing like stabs or like long held out chords. Like you can tell that there's like kind of like a, a disco element to it like the like yeah. the bongo drums and the sort of like you know upbeat hi-hat like dance groove on the drums but mm-hmm. the way that they're playing disco is as if it's prog you know right <laughs> italo disco yes yeah it's like this like in general i think a lot of the music on the sh- on the show has like a very 70s vibe to me like there's totally a lot done. of like you're right like huge sweeping string sections and like this sort of subtle disco influence and even like the what the lighter kind of country-ish stuff you could see it being like kind of like the the john denver strain of country like oscar's theme has a bit of like uh you know the country boy energy to it and i hate both of them equally (laughs) oscar's gonna gonna take her horse to the old town road for sure can't (laughs) nobody tell her nothing that's uh 100 true yeah it's it's funny to think of the like the three ava pilots as being zoomers because they totally are Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know shinji is listening to like you know billy eilish or whatever (laughs) like shinji's totally listening to billy eilish the question really is like what does ray listen to i feel like (laughs) ray's personality now that we like have her actually like interacting with the rest of the like the teenagers it just like begs like what the fuck is her deal in so many ways like she's reading a book like what does ray read like what does ray do for fun what kind of music does she listen to Ray likes mumble rap. Uh, yeah. Ray likes Ray likes future. Ray Ray's Ray's Ray just wants to go home and take her prescriptions. Because <laughs> right, Oh my god. Oh yeah, you're right. It's the the fact she's got all like the drugs in her house. Yeah. She's totally listening to like Lil Peep and like you know all the like super dark like soundcloud rap shit that's so great i love this that's totally what ray's into <laughs> this is the, this is our best tangent <laughs> i i i'm i'm gonna be remiss to edit any of that out god uh we should return however to the subject of the music that actually does take place on evangelion is there another piece of music that you've heard so far that you'd want to talk about well okay there's a few things we should talk about and one of them is the piece of music that's absent yeah. uh this is big this is big and this is like there's going to be other things that that the Netflix version fucks up. We're going to get to it. There's going to be a whole episode about it. Some of you already know what I'm talking about, but hold up. But 
probably the second most egregious mistake with this version of Evangelion, and I understand why they did it. It's a rights issue. If you're watching it on Netflix, Ray's theme is not the end theme song to Evangelion. The end theme song to Evangelion is a cover of Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. I have no idea why. I've got like sort of a vague idea as to why they they picked that song. I have no idea how. Like for, for this show, they're like, yeah, we're going to get a cover of a Frank Sinatra song to, to do it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a really strange choice in the original show that I think adds to a, a technique that will come back time and time again, which is dramatic irony in music. The sort of sudden tonal dissonance of like here of seeing, you know, Shinji screaming as a laser burst through his chest and immediately cut to fucking fly me to the moon. It it leaves this like really uncomfortable sensation under your skin. Like it's like sort of Lynchian, you know, it's like a similar technique that like someone like David Lynch will use to like have like horrific violence contrasted with like traditionally like wholesome, beautiful music you know pop music yeah pop music in particular like tarantino does this too it's like a at this point a pretty well-worn trope but if you like those are contemporaneous to to ava you know all of these like 90s directors were doing this kind of stuff around the same time yeah it's i don't i i they're all keying into something in the zeitgeist that i was i'm probably too young to tap into without having some sort of like deep academic research about it it's interesting to note, however, also that it's not the same version of Fly Me to the Moon at the end of every episode. They have different voice actors on the series record the covers. If you find the original ADV DVDs and listen, there's a Gendo version. There's the voice actor who plays Gendo singing it badly. There's the bridge crew singing it. And I believe there's one. I may be making this up, but I think I'm right. I believe there is one version that has an ensemble of the cast singing it when they're all audibly totally shit-faced. <laughs> I don't recall that one, but I there's a lot of variation in them. Like it's like different arrangements, different singers, and it is it's just such a nice way of it's another thing of like variation within a theme, right? You have Monster of the Week, you've got a different version of the ending song every time. It's just it was a nice little flourish of character to the show that I really appreciated. You know, I like Ray's theme a lot. I think it's one of the better musical cues in the show. I think it's a really beautiful piece of music that it's the third best cue. Yeah. I've I've got a list. <laughs> um and it, it what I like about it is especially is like as the show goes on, they do a lot of variations on Ray's theme. It's orchestrated a bunch of different ways for different scenes and it it's a really functional piece of music because in each different uh, iteration it conveys something different about the character or the situation right and having it at the end of the show you know if it wasn't for the fact that i i have such clear and fond memories of hearing fly me to the moon i think it's a pretty good ending theme it changes the tone of the way that the ending it's almost like too literal you know to have this like really somber dark piano music to close out the show mm -hmm. It like detracts from the the ironic aspect, but it doesn't fuck with the emotional core of the show. Like it's not like out of place. It's just maybe a bit too obvious. It's it's not out of place. I, I I'm not as fond of Ray's theme as as you are. I I like it. I, the the two themes that stick with me are first of all the angel attack theme. 
dun 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 it's the weird mix of like dissonant heavy metal guitar and like brass it just fucking works and it it does say to me instantly it's like big scary thing a coming it's perfect for that yeah all the angel like the various like angel themes are very good like that really sparse high piano uh, that they use mm-hmm. is simple, but just does the job. It's like good film scoring. And like the beast is a terrific battle theme as well. Mm-hmm. The, all of the giant like orchestra violence sections are, are very evocative and feel classic. You know, they have this like old mm-hmm. school Hollywood like verve to them that really helps like elevate the 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 drama of the fight scenes my understanding is that the the use of like chamber orchestra with mixed instrumentation in this show was a relatively novel idea at the time specifically within anime or within within it within anime my my understanding is that is that and i'm getting this from at one point in time i had the soundtracks on cd and I had to sell them. They were, they were actually worth a lot of money. But like they, they came with extensive liner notes. And, and in the liner notes of the first one, there was like an essay where I, and I, I'm sorry, I forget who the author was. But he made this point where he's like, no anime soundtrack sounded like this in 1994. It was all big pop and rock stuff. And like the 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 use of chamber orchestra in it and then the use of like full on quoting classical music in it was my understanding is like so out of out of step with the times mm-hmm. at the time we will have to do i think a second episode about the music in this show because as you can probably tell the vibe of ava is, a, is going to change very drastically and the music shifts to reflect that there's like there's one <laughs> go on like, do it well it's, you mentioned like the quoting of actual classical music but there's also just like more themes that we have yet to hear and that the show is i think deliberately holding back from us and when they do show up, it's going to feel very different. And it's going to let you know that something has drastically changed in the tone of the show. The So far, I would say that the themes are all, as you mentioned, inventive in small ways. But it's all very functional and very, like, true to the, the sense of the show itself is, like, m- mostly playing on known tropes and known standards of monster of the week uh, middle school anime drama you know it's it's all stuff that you recognize but just done at a very high level yeah per, per heightened exaggerated stylized mm-hmm. are there any other pieces of music do we want to maybe talk about the uh, the waltz theme that you mentioned you alluded to earlier well uh, you so you're sort of getting at what i was talking about about like this is the first episode where the series infatuation with classical music really shows its face like you you get a hint at that with like shinji's tape i know i just made the joke that he's he's listening to billy eilish but like he's weirdly like a classical music dweeb is a strange character choice but makes perfect sense it's like oh you fucking nerd yeah you're listening to fucking bach i bet you call him jsb (laughs) when you're texting before we do that though i was actually going to say like my favorite piece of music in the whole series is probably misato's theme Uh, minus the theme song minus cruel angels thesis that thing's a a, a, a cut above anything else but like in terms of like the the competition because it's in another bracket entirely it's unfair to put that in competition with the rest of the music in the show so if we had to put all the music used in the show in competition i i have this just pavlovian reaction to misato's theme and so just to clarify, uh, Misato's, th- 
Is that the the upbeat one that we hear? It's the upbeat one. It's 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 the her. It's the drunk in the apartment theme. It's the do 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 do. It it just it feels good. It makes me feel happy. It and I think maybe that works because like I think to, it, as dark as the show is and as complicated as the feels are, like it. I think the show wants when you see Misato for you to feel happy. Yes. I think I think like the show wants you like see her and be like, this is a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, you it always lets you feel like that theme lets you know that you're you're safe. You know, you're home. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the musical representation of Masato telling Shinji you're home. And it always like lets your guard down in a great way. I love the sequence uh, along those lines of uh, all the kids coming over to Masato's apartment to watch Shinji and Asuka training. You know, I, I love like the hangout side of things when it happens in the show it happens so rarely but when these characters are actually just like socializing with each other it makes it just makes my heart feel good <laughs> uh, interesting side note about that sequence sorry slight tangent do forgive me um this that episode predates the invention of dance dance revolution uh, and in my, in my memory they're playing ddr when they're training but like in watching it i realized it's really something more like twister yeah it's com- it's competitive single player twister is the best way to put it some part of me needs to wonder if someone didn't watch this show and think what if and now that person's successful uh video game executive it also makes total sense that ray would be like a fucking beast at ddr like that <laughs> totally um one one side note i want to like just put a pin on this because it's it's something that cues back. It's a really small character thing for Ray, but we, we've talked about how she has like a lack of sense of self and she doesn't think of herself first and is in some way kind of an empty shell. And the fact that she's able to synchronize with Shinji so well is a really cool way of mirroring that. Like she doesn't have the sort of force of personality that Asuka does that would prevent her from being able to like move in sync with another person. Mm-hmm. It's, a nice little touch that still it enforces like a character theme for Ray while also setting up the like Ray versus Oscar, like Oscar's sense of like th- that Ray is a threat to her in some way. It's really small shit like that, that, it, that these episodes pull off really, really well. Well, Ray is only good at everything and completely incapable of, of showing emotion because whenever the camera isn't on her, she's in the bathroom crushing up pills and sports. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 true. It, like the Oscar Ray rivalry is going to develop, mm-hmm. but it is sort of red versus blue, passion versus remove. It it it's sort of interesting the the way that it it sets Oscar's Shinji is Oscar's foil and vice versa and weirdly Oscar's also Ray's foil. Yeah, it's, the show is like less about simple dichotomies and more about triangular relationships in one way or another, um, which you could also see as being a reflection of some sort of Christian themes as well. There's a Trinity aspect here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, mm-hmm. oh, also another, another nice little segue. It's got, uh, I want to make my point about the waltz. So going back to another type of three. Do it. Um, the reason that the waltz montage works so well and why it feels different than the Cruel Angel's thesis montage or the training montage sequence is that it feels settled. It's a like everything is happening on the downbeats. You see everything coming cl- together in this like very like calm and secure and confident way. 
And it's the first time that we see the Ava pilots being legit great at their job and being comfortable being Ava pilots. And that's like the confidence that Asuka brings to the show is like she enjoys piloting the Ava for the sake of it. She just loves doing it and she feels comfortable doing it. And it's so different than the other two characters that we've talked about who have this much more complicated relationship that's tied up in like issues with Gendo specifically, who you may know, noticed wasn't in the command seat for either of these two missions. And so instead it's Fusuke. And so suddenly the like Freudian brain eating fear of Gendo of the father figure is removed. And then the show just takes on this much more lighter, more relaxed tone. Having the waltz be the score to that fight scene is just such a great way of like settling you into like, no, they're good at this now. They're really good at being Ava pilots. And the show carries that understanding from here on forward. That colors the way that we look at the Evas for the rest of the show. It's also it's also interesting that Shinji's going to Shinji's relationship with Unit One is going to develop. Like it, we're not spoiling now when we're talking about the sense that like the Evas are are like organisms and have personalities. We've already seen a bit of that in the early goings, and even though these last few episodes haven't really addressed that, it's something that I'm I'm hoping that you'll remember from the the early darker period of the show. Like keep all that in mind. It hasn't gone away. It's still important and it will come up later. Right. So Oscar's the only character that has a relationship with her unit two. She loves, she loves unit. Two. Yes. She like, she, and she like cares about its feelings and its appearance. Mm-hmm. And she like, it's interesting. Like you haven't seen that before. Yeah, there's a way of looking at it like, you know, when she first introduces Unit 2, she's talking about how it's like the most like souped up, official, real deal, like combat ready Ava. But it's not just that she's like protective of, you know, her. It's not just her property. It's she really cares about how it's perceived. It's an extension of herself in a lot of ways. Um, and she's the the first Ava pilot to literalize that relationship, that kind of implicit Ava as like connector to the self. Um, and she's like taken aback by the idea that Ray wants to pilot it. Like she's disgusted by that idea. And it, it's it's another like cool uh, difference that makes Asuka's presence in the show so enjoyable. Yeah, it, I you're totally you're totally right. I think it's interesting that even so, there's a remove because she's she's not really capable of understanding what Unit Two wants. I mean, we see that some of the units have wants unit one wants Shinji alive it moves against its restraints to protect him unit zero wants Gendo dead like when it goes berserk the first thing it tries to do is Mm -hmm. kill him we don't know what unit two wants and neither does Asuka Asuka projects her wants onto it she assumes unit two doesn't want to be seen as goofy right but we don't know that about unit too so again it's it's full circle back to the pool scene it's misses like she can't even not only can she not truly connect with shinji she doesn't even really understand or we can't be certain that she really understands what her evangelion wants yes Uh, if you sort of take that as a if we continue understanding the avas like piloting the avas as being like a metaphor uh for going out and you know, whether it's you know, going to your job or just living your life in some way, it's like taking up some sort of burden or task. Um, 
that will reflect on what we understand of Asuka. Asuka doesn't know what she wants yet. She's uncertain of her own desires. Like, I think that she doesn't even realize that she has a crush on, crush on Shinji, even though she obviously does. Like, she's yeah. it, it speaks to a level of lack of uh, self-awareness in her um, that I think is true for the character in general. Um, one other thing that makes these episodes good is we don't get very much of the boys. I just want to, like, point that out, is that they're barely, like, you get, you know, them creeping on and selling pictures of Asuka, but after that, they're kind of... Oh, it's so fucking close. <laughs> it, like, I, 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 everything involving the boys sucks. I, it, and, and and also maybe just briefly, because I know that we, we should probably button this one up pretty soon, just because we've got... I can't believe we've got this many feels on these two episodes. I, it's funny uh, how this podcast episode is actually the exact mix of tones that these two episodes of the show is, in that it's like... Oh, my God. Us, it's syncing with <laughs> us. <laughs> God damn it. it. As I said earlier, it's like we're starting to resemble the thing that we're talking about. And I, there's a certain degree to which like doing this podcast is starting to feel like piloting the Avas. But D- does that mean by the end of this podcast, we're all going to be incredibly <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yes, to, to the point about the uh, boys, we're laughing about it now. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> um, the, the boys lack of presence and like the fact that they're not really taking up any screen time is uh, one of the better parts of Asuka being in the show is like oh finally we've got another main character that we can have the other main characters talk to instead of these two chuckle fucks like it's just such a, a great change of pace and it, it really realigns the uh, the balance of the show in a way that is great going forward how are we to interpret the scene of Asuka has has she sleepwalked into Shinji's room is that how we're supposed to interpret it or has she made some sort of mistake because the layout of the apartment I spent a lot of time like pondering that because it it leads into me pondering about you know we see that he like he looks at her and then he inches a little bit closer and he looks at her lips we don't she later makes the assertion that that he's trying to kiss her against her will and he doesn't deny it, but he says, I can't believe you were awake, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I like my first interpretation of that scene isn't that Shinji is trying to like force himself on her in, in, in any way. I just, I just think he's aching and curious and, and confused. Maybe I'm giving him too much. No, time. I think, that scene, it's important to take that scene and the pool scene together in some ways because I think they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to your mm-hmm. point about Asuka not understanding uh, the what her Ava wants, I don't think, and how that reflects how she doesn't know what she wants, like her unconsciously jumping into Shinji's bed and you know reaching out for some kind of connection, I think that she doesn't even realize that she needs Shinji in that way. She's unconscious of the fact that she has like a, uh, a desire to be loved, really, I guess would be the uh, this sort of boldface way of putting it. And it's that same like her stumbling into revealing how vulnerable she is. Like she doesn't actually know how to show that she is vulnerable. So she shows it in these like mm. unconscious ways, like while she's asleep or it expresses itself in this like overtly sexualized flirting. 
And I think it's the same thing with Shinji. Like Shinji doesn't know how to reciprocate or process that from Asuka. And so is he reaching out to kiss her? Probably. But I think that he doesn't even know why he's doing it. It's it's this level of like both of them at that moment are so stripped bare of their egos and are just responding to each other with like pure need and desire. It's the kind of thing that like it it is in contrast to all of the like pervy dick jokes and stuff from the previous two episodes. It's a representation of sexuality and teenage sexuality on the show that I think is way more sympathetic and way more uh, real to its characters. Um, I, I think that these scenes are, are really well written and are crucial to the show. And I think it's good that you can't read them straight through. They're, they're supposed to be kind of uh, uncertain because the characters are uncertain. I'm, I'm, that's interesting because I also think I, I don't love the dick jokes in the series, but I do think the dick joke at the end of Magma Diver kind of works. Well, because they spend the whole episode setting it up. It's like all of this talk of like thermal expansion and heat expansion. It's like if they don't pay it off with some sort of obvious joke about an erection, like they're just missing the opportunity. Like they're actually like leaving shit on the table at that point because obviously like the metaphor of heat expansion in a show that is so sexualized, it like couldn't be more on the nose. Like, come on. But it's also like a very, I didn't, this is a thing you learn as an adult going back and watching it. But like the, <laughs> the experience of having an erection and then being in the same room as a pet, and then <laughs> like the pet looks at it is like, that's a real thing that has happened to tons of people. <laughs> and and it, it is always like, I, I think you'd, maybe it's just me, but like, I don't know. When my cat sees me come out of the shower, sometimes I'm kind of like, oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, the cat doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Pen Pen doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Why is he embarrassed? <laughs> I think the dick joke and what you're talking about, about the intimacy, get toward... And I think I'm going to expand on this in, in future episodes. I'm I'm developing a working understanding a unified theory of Evangelion. Right. That's what we're going for here. And I think I'm, I think I'm finding it. And I think my unified theory of Evangelion is it works because it takes the problems of being a, not sexually frustrated, but a sexually confused and frightened young person. Th with dead seriousness mm -hmm. with, with like with biblical religious seriousness even as it's making a joke right is it's like it's it, i think that's what makes the show good that's what it manages to do that other anime series don't yeah i i agree 100 percent um we should start wrapping this one up i think we're running a bit long uh so we've got the next pair of episodes is also slightly lower stakes like these ones are, uh, and we'll continue to flesh out the supporting cast in the ways that these episodes have started to. Uh, this whole group of four really feels all of a piece. It's six. We've got two more. 
we've got two more episodes of this podcast in the in the the comfort zone and then we're going to get into the discomfort zone so feel free to get comfortable we'll find other little side stories and little other angles to include and you know maybe we'll start including a bit more fan service as well <laughs> catch you later joseph Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.